News of the United States Government. This is VOA News. I'm Richard Green. Israel's parliament voted on Wednesday to back Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's declaration opposing the unilateral creation of a Palestinian state following growing international calls for the revival of efforts to reach a two-state solution to the decades-long conflict. Such an attempt will only endanger Israel and will prevent the genuine peace that we all seek. Peace can only be achieved after we achieve total victory over Hamas and through direct negotiations between the parties, direct negotiations without preconditions. Opposition leader Yair Lapid said the entire move was a political stunt by Netanyahu. Lapid accused the prime minister of making up a threat that does not exist. Hamas is a U.S.-designated terrorist group. Iran has accused Israel of a sabotage attack on an Iranian natural gas pipeline caused by multiple explosions a week ago. AP correspondent Karen Chamas reports. The comments by Iran's oil minister Javad Alji come as Israel has been blamed for a series of attacks targeting Tehran's nuclear program. He called the explosions part of an Israeli plot intended to wreak havoc on Iran's gas distribution. Israel has not acknowledged carrying out the attack, though it rarely claims its espionage missions abroad. The office of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, a longtime foe of Iran, did not immediately respond to a request for comment. I'm Karen Chamas. Brazil said global institutions are not up to the job of solving the world's biggest crises. Brazil Foreign Minister Mauro Vieira made the bleak assessment Wednesday at the start of the two-day meeting of foreign ministers from the Group of 20 Nations in Rio de Janeiro. Vieira cited the failure of the UN Security Council to prevent or halt conflicts such as those playing out in Ukraine on the Gaza Strip, which he called an unacceptable paralysis. This is VOA News. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva is calling for reform of the UN and other institutions such as, such as the World Trade Organization and multilateral banks. Foreign ministers of the world's 20 rich and developing nations are gathering this week to lay the groundwork for a November summit in Rio. Years of war have introduced new elements into Ukrainian children's lives, such as bomb shelters in kindergartens and schools, mine safety lessons, and first aid training. From Kiev, Licia Bakalets reports. A kindergarten teacher says, look, here is an abandoned house, and it can be dangerous. Why? A kid answers, because they may be a grenade. These students in the city of Irpin are just three or four years old, and every week they have special safety classes. Now Ukrainian students of all ages get lessons in the wartime dangers they face every day. Lesya Bakalets, VOA News, Kyiv. Ukraine's president has invited Poland's leaders to meet him at their shared border to resolve a blockade by Polish farmers protesting Ukrainian food imports. President Volodymyr Zelensky said the blockade is hampering the shipments of weapons to Ukrainian soldiers. He hopes the border meeting could happen before the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on Saturday. The brother of U.S. President Joe Biden was on Capitol Hill Wednesday for a private interview as part of the impeachment inquiry into the president. 
AP correspondent Sagar Magani reports. Mr. Biden, what do you make of the investigation, Mr. Biden? It's one of several interviews GOP lawmakers have done in trying to build momentum for an impeachment process that stalled in recent months. Even some Republicans have criticized a lack of evidence directly tying the president to his family's alleged efforts to leverage the Biden name into corporate paydays. The probe was undercut again last week when an FBI informant who claimed claimed there was a bribery scheme involving the president, Hunter Biden, and a Ukrainian energy firm was charged with making up the story, which was central to the GOP investigation. Sagar Magani, Washington. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange will not find out until next month at the earliest whether he can appeal extradition to the United States on spying charges. Two British High Court judges said Wednesday they will take time to consider their verdict. It came after a two-day hearing in which Assange's lawyers argued he risked a flagrant denial of justice if he is sent to the U.S. to face espionage charges. Find more on this story and all the stories we're covering at VOANews.com. I'm Richard Green for... VOA News. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty, Washington. Today is Thursday, February 22nd, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Malawi's president spells out measures to mitigate the impact of hunger and drought. I must emphasize that beyond government interventions, we will need the support of all Malawians of goodwill and our development partners to adequately respond to the needs. Guinea Conakry's junta explains why it dissolved the government this week. South Africa plans to hold national elections on May 29. We'll have an analysis. Ugandan government Wednesday released two opposition supporters after withdrawing charges. Kenya's government says it is taking steps to ease the cost of living. The 500 billion Kenya shillings we spend every year to import food into Kenya will only go down the day we produce that food in Kenya. Those stories plus our Black History Month and presentation are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Malawi is facing a second wave of El Nino-induced drought in three months, which has withered thousands of hectares of crops and posing a severe threat to food security. Authorities in one of the worst hit districts, Mangochi, says 79% of the crops there have died. The The dry spell comes as Malawi is facing food shortages, affecting nearly a quarter of the population and forcing some people to survive on wild tubers. However, Malawi President Lastroy Chakwera told Parliament on Wednesday that his administration will ensure that no one will die of hunger. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. President Chakwera says his administration is currently conducting a scientific assessment to establish the extent of the impact of the dry spell on the national level. The results of this assessment will then inform the key interventions that we need to embark on. But I must emphasize that beyond government interventions, we will need the support of all Malawians of goodwill and our development partners to adequately respond to the needs. However, authorities in Mangoji district 
one of the worst heat in southern Malawi, says 79% of crops there have dried up. Gertrude Kajere, a subsistence farmer, says the dry spell has wilted her entire three hectares of maize crops and that now she's surviving on wild tubers. She says it will be tough for me this year because I cannot even replant. I have to have money to buy seeds. Also, I don't have money to buy fertilizer. I would wish the government to assist. The meteorological department in Malawi says in its recent weather update that the dry spell would continue until the end of rainy season in April. However, Chakwera says despite unfavorable weather conditions, his administration is taking measures to ensure that the country's food security goals are met. He says his administration will help small-scale farmers to irrigate their fields as soon as the current crops are harvested. A total of 57,065 hectares under smallholders will be under supplemental irrigation in the 2023-2024 rain-fed cropping season. This will help to boost the production realized under irrigation. Chakwera also says the Malawi Prison Service and the Malawi Defense Force are also involved in the production of maize using supplementary irrigation. It is envisaged that the strategies put in place will ably cover the deficit that might arise from the current production season. Nevertheless, should there be a deficit, my government will import the shortfall so that no one dies from hunger in this country. Malawi government spokesperson Moses Kunkuyu told a press conference Tuesday that the government will from Thursday start the free distribution of 23,000 tons of flour milled from the maize grain which the World Food Program has purchased from Tanzania. For VOA Africa, I am Lamik Masina in Blanta, Malawi. Kenya's government says it is committed to building the economy by increasing revenue collection, reducing government spending, and ensuring that the country can repay its debt and live within its means. The government announcement comes days after the African Development Bank in its outlook report for 2024 warned Kenya among four African countries that it faces social unrest due to rising commodity prices. Mohamed Yusuf reports. In a report looking at the economic prospects of African countries, the African Development Bank says many nations continue to grapple with higher commodity prices. The bank cites weak domestic currencies and slow economic activities in countries that import more than they export. The financial institution warns that the high cost of essential foods items in some African countries like Angola, Ethiopia, Kenya and Nigeria will likely cause civil unrest. Speaking to journalists Wednesday, Kenyan President William Ruto said his government has done just enough to reduce the economic burden on Kenyans. The strategy we have put in place uh, over the last one year has seen the cost of living come down. Whether you talk about the cost of food, whether you talk about inflation, and what we have done with the management of the debt situation in the country. Ruto blamed the previous government for burdening the country with foreign debt and failing to collect enough revenue to balance the country's accounts. The government removed fuel subsidies, 
which were meant to cushion Kenyans from the high prices of food as part of his economic reform agenda. That reform, the African Development Bank says, could cause unrest. According to FDB research, 19 African countries recorded double-digit inflation rates last year. Earlier this month, the Central Bank of Kenya's Monetary Policy Committee warned citizens to brace for higher food prices due to soaring inflations and expensive imports because of the depreciation of the local currency. Kenya has also witnessed protests over high food prices, but people continue to express their displeasure with the country's economic status in public gatherings and on social media networks. Samuel Nyandemo, economics lecturer at the University of Nairobi, says some Kenyans are losing patience with Ruto's 18-month-old government. Kenyans, uh, their patience is eroding. Unless some, uh, some of these issues are uh, addressed with urgency, there will be some animosity, whether you like it or not. You can even see from political meetings, people are now so courageous, they are even shouting at the president. What does that show you? It shows you that people are getting disgusted. We better start addressing key issues first. First things must be done first. And the first thing is reducing the cost of living. Kenya's government says it has managed to lower food prices and the economy is improving despite spending much of its revenue repaying loans. Ruta says Kenya needs to reduce its reliance on food imports to strengthen the currency and reduce food prices. The 500 billion Kenya shillings we spend every year to import food into Kenya will only go down the day we produce that food in Kenya. That is the step we are making. And we have made a commitment as a government that we want to reduce imports by 50% in the next five years. The African Development Bank urges African countries to build resilience in a world of rising uncertainty and geopolitical competition. Mohamed Yusuf, VOA News, Nairobi. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa announced this week that his country will hold national elections on May 29. The polls come as Africa's most developed economy faces a myriad of problems under the ruling African National Congress, the ANC. Polls show that the ruling ANC could lose its majority for the first time since it came to power with the fall of apartheid 30 years ago. Pumla Nui. Majosi is an author and a macroeconomic and political analyst. He tells viewers Douglas Mpuga that uh, this election is crucial given the dire state of the country now. Oh, it's very important, very, very crucial. In fact, some people, they describe it as an hour 1994 because of how crucial, how important it is, given the dire state of the country and given the fact that much of the governance that we have seen over the past decade has been, you know, terrible, right? It's been very, it's been, it's been very bad governance. Our unemployment rates have skyrocketed. Economic growth has really has never reached even 2% over the past 15 years now. Uh, the problems of crime, even the murder rate has skyrocketed over the past 10 years. So there are many problems. The issues of blackouts, power outages, electricity problems, that have negatively impacted the economy. Our economy has has been constrained and suppressed by the blackouts. And we have seen many small businesses being shut down because of the blackouts problems. So it's a very important election for, for South Africans. It's an opportunity. South Africans have a chance to reshape their country. And it looks like there is that appetite to reshape the country, given how the ruling party, the African National Congress, that has ruled since 1994, 
is polling at the moment. The polls, they are showing the ruling party doing very badly. ANC, as you say, came into power almost 30 years ago, and some analysts are saying this time it has serious competition. Are those problems the cause of this serious competition? Yes, the party is facing some serious competition now because we have seen the opposition parties really coming up as a strong force, uh, which has been uh, significant. And also what we have seen is that because of the mismanagement of the country by the ruling party, that has really weakened it. The blackouts over the past year made things much, much worse for the ruling party, and people just lost the total faith. Uh, many people no longer believe the ANC that has ruled since 1994 is the party now to take the country forward. So uh, competition is real, and it does seem that the projections are showing that really the African National Congress will hit below uh, 50% uh, in terms of the vote, and then we are going to see a coalition government, which should be a significant change for South Africa post-apartheid. Uh, so the, the competition is real, and then that is what has put the ANC under pressure. And now there is a breakaway within the ANC has It's split now, so that will negatively impact it uh, at the polls this year. ANC, despite all that, remains popular across the continent and internationally. Will, do you think if they lost power, would South Africa's foreign policy change? Oh, you see, my argument has been that if we want to see changes in policy, uh, whether it's foreign policy or domestic policy, if we want to see a new direction, the ANC will need to govern with inequality. And I think that's what should really bring that significant change would be a coalition between the African National Congress and the biggest opposition party, the Democratic Alliance. Because the Democratic Alliance is more of a right-center party, the ANC is more left-center. And for them to come together and hold one another to account, that would be positive for markets and for South Africa's reputation as well. And it would mean change because the DA of the, the biggest opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, it sees foreign policy different than the ANC. And it's come out as very much different from how it approaches international affairs and how it aims to also approach domestic affairs as well. Pulani Majose is an author and a macroeconomic and political analyst. He spoke from Johannesburg with my colleague Douglas Umpuga. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Barton, Washington. Today is Thursday, February 22nd. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Opposition leader in Uganda's parliament says they will continue to agitate for the release of all alleged missing and detained supporters until they are all released. This after the government Wednesday released uh, two National Unity Platform NUP party supporters after the state withdrew charges against them. They had been in jail for 10 months. The Uganda Monitor reports that the two were among 11 NUP supporters accused of engaging in terrorist activities and making improvised explosive devices. Opposition MPs have been boycotting parliamentary proceedings since last October 
to demand the release of their supporters who they allege are being held by security forces. Opposition leader in parliament, Joe Nyonyi, tells me that uh, the lack of someone for two to lock up someone for two to three years without evidence is no longer prosecution or persecution. The release of those two ladies has been long overdue because these are people that were arrested and then they trumped up charges against them, plus several others, saying they manufacture bombs and so on without any evidence. So it's a group of 11 that were arrested and for about a year now, trial has not kicked off. The state says they are looking for evidence. So clearly, as we have been demanding and saying, look, if you don't have evidence, drop the charges or grant it for bail. It's a good thing that for these two, the charges have been dropped because they were non-existent from the word go. And besides those, there are others who have spent in jail three to four years via the military courts. And each time, prosecution says they are looking for evidence, they are gathering the evidence. After three to four years, surely, if you don't have the evidence, it does not exist. You're simply trying to fabricate it. So that's the clarion call we have been making, drop these trumped up charges. But if you insist you're still looking for evidence, grant these people bail for heaven's sake. How do you lock up somebody for three to four years and you're still looking for evidence? That, that ceases to be prosecution. It is persecution. And mind you, all of these people are non-supporters of NUP. That's why they are arrested for political reasons, simply because they don't support the regime in Uganda, not because they've committed any offense. I know that the government has said that it doesn't arrest people because of their political affiliation. But let me ask uh, a judge had given the government lawyers time to present evidence in court or the case would be terminated. Do you think uh, the release of these two NUP members could be related to the, the judge's order? Maybe. Sometimes they obey court orders, other times they don't. But we're saying that's what should happen. And perhaps this is because this particular matter is before a civilian court. But the ones of three to four years that I'm talking about, they are trials before a military court, and these are civilians. Little wonder they are treated the way they are treated. So we are saying justice demands that you don't hold somebody for that long when you don't have any evidence against them, when trial has not kicked off. If you can't drop the charges, then release them on bail. When you eventually get the evidence, you call them back to court. I know the um, opposition parliamentarians have been protesting to demand the release of these people. Um, what does that do now to your protest in parliament? Well, we are using all avenues to continuously demand for people because many are still in jail. These are just two that have been, you know, uh, freed. Dozens of others that are in different jails. Some are actually on that very charge sheet of where these two were. So there's so many of them. And so we are not going to stop demanding the freeing of these people because their only crime is that they supported Bobby White. How can that be a crime? People should have the right to support whoever they want to support. You can't force people to love and support it. That's what this regime keeps trying to do. People that don't support it, they are incarcerated, they are abducted and so on. And that's ridiculous in this day and age. Joel Senyonyi is the opposition leader in Uganda's parliament. He was speaking with us from the capital, Kampala, in Guinea, Kunakri, 24 hours after the sudden dissolution of the government without explanation. The secretary to military junta leader, Mamandi Dumuya, says the government was dissolved to inject new life into the cabinet and meet the priorities of the transition to civilian rule. Reporter Karim Kamara has more from Kunakri. Junta leader Mamadi Dumboya on Monday dissolved the entire government without giving reasons. This led to open speculation by ordinary Guineans. 
Lady Jim spokesman who announced the end of the government on state television. General Amara Kamara says the reason for the move was the need to improve the functioning of the cabinet. He says the head of state wants the development of all Guinea sectors as part of social, economical, and political transition of the country. But opposition says this reason given we are just a way to divert public attention because the junta had failed completely in all its efforts. Opposition member Dr. Edward Zotomo says the military used the sacked ministers as scapegoats. We are hoping it is not a, what I call a cosmetic change. Why? Because everything is pointing out, it's pointing to a fact that uh, uh, the government is just doing that to distract people. It's like a diversion tactic so that we won't see. In other words, uh, th this is coming as a result of the abysmal failure of the transition. Political analyst Abdul Karim Sani says the dissolution of the government is a good idea. Well, the dissolution is like a change for the better, rather, if I am to be specific. Judging the fact that um, quite of late we've seen the economic, political and the social conditions in this country being upside down. And I think with this dissolution, the government will be forced to choose um, people who are ready to work, people who are committed, people who are dedicated to give uh, the people that pledge what they deserve. On the street of Conakry, this is how people reacted to the news. Amadou Jallo. This man who is engaged in private security says dissolving the cabinet is not the answer. In his view, all politicians should form a government of national unity. That's the solution. Student Lai Jane. He says the move is not good for the country and will push it backwards. Another student for the Bangoda says the same thing. He says it is up to the new government to meet the needs of Guineans by helping to end the suffering of the people. The permanent secretaries will today fully assume their post as interim ministers. Guineans are impatiently waiting to see who will be their prime minister in the days to come, while many are calling for a technocrat with good leadership skills. For VOA Africa, I am Karim Kamara in Conakry. Ghana's parliament on Wednesday moved a step closer to holding a vote on a bill that seeks to further clamp down on the rights of LGBT people, rejecting a proposal that would have seen jail terms for gay sex replaced with non-custodial sentences such as counseling. It is time now for our Black History Month and African History presentation for today, February 22nd. On this day, 1950, basketball star Julius Winfield Irvin was born in Hampstead, New York. His acrobatic moves on the court won him the nickname Dr. J. His career as an NBA player began in 1976 with the Philadelphia 76ers and lasted until 1987. During that time, Dr. J led the 76ers to the NBA Finals four times and won the championship in 1983.
Also on this day in 1989, singer Tina Turner won a Grammy for Best Female Rock Vocalist. At age 49, Tina Turner became one of the oldest female artists in history to stage such a strong comeback. She was introduced in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1991. Tina Turner died May 24, 2023. Did you know that Douglas L. Wilder was the first black to be elected governor in the United States since Reconstruction? In 1989, Wilder was elected governor of the state of Virginia. Prior to Wilder, only one other black person has served as governor. He is PBS Pinchback, who briefly served as governor of Louisiana in 1872 after the sitting governor there was impeached. Those are your Black History Month and African History Facts for today, February 22nd. And that's it for this Thursday, February 22nd edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guest this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Martin Washington saying... Have a great day and please be safe whatever you do.